When you enrich the lives of your employees through purpose-powered leadership, they'll grow your business for you. Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where you'll discover how to champion a culture of courage and love. Stop dealing with symptoms and get to the root of the problems in your business. This is the Higher Purpose Podcast with your host, Kevin Monroe. It's Kevin Monroe, and I want to welcome you to this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. I'm so excited to have you join me for today's conversation and really can't wait for you to get to know Rich Sheridan. Rich is my first crossover guest from a podcast I used to do, Servant Leadership Sessions. It was just over three years ago when the episode with Rich aired, and I've stayed in touch with Rich ever since. As we were mapping this Profiles of Purpose series, identifying business owners and leaders whose businesses tap into the power of purpose, well, it was a no-brainer to invite Rich to one of these conversations. You see, Rich is the co-founder, CEO, and chief storyteller of Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's also the author of Joy, Inc., The subtitle of that book is How We Built a Workplace People Love. Well, that's probably enough to let you know this is going to be a delightful conversation. So join us as we sit down to talk about joy and the business value of joy at work. Rich, it is such a joy to welcome you to the Higher Purpose Podcast. I want to thank you for your generosity in joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin. Hey, as we get started, tell us something about you that gives us a peek into Rich Sheridan as a real person? Uh, People tell me I'm tall. (laughs) I'm six foot five. It doesn't seem tall to me, but uh, apparently to the rest of the world, that's true. Uh, I have three uh, wonderful uh, full-grown daughters that my wife did an amazing job raising uh, because they're uh, awesome human beings. And I'm sure that most of that came from her. Um, And Uh, Right now, a delightful little three-year-old granddaughter we call Mimi, and she is the light of our lives, all of us, and uh, and another one on the way. Wow. Uh, So uh, she'll be in the world in about uh, two months. Okay, I can relate to that. We have a uh, granddaughter, two and a half, that's Emma, and and she is the light of our life and makes so much fun. So much fun. So, Rich, at this point, how do you describe your personal purpose? You know, I, I think for me personally, uh, I'm, I'm carrying a candle, uh, and that candle is uh, trying to light a fire inside of others, uh, create an impact, and getting people back to their own purpose, mm. uh, reminding people why they, why they were excited about the profession they chose, why they were excited about going to work every day and perhaps rescuing them a bit from uh, the moments where they realize somehow that light has gone out. So mm-hmm. I want to I relight that light in people's lives. Well, you've come to the right place. We, let's do that together today, Rich. Okay. Uh, tell, me, tell us about the journey you've traveled on your path to, to purpose and how now, or, or do you feel you get to do that through your work now? I don't want to assume you do, but yeah. Well, I, my life is is bifurcated almost evenly now between a pretty standard career uh, that was uh, 
roughly 19 years in the making, and it's been about 19 years since uh, I experienced a grand personal transformation that led to what would ultimately become Menlo Innovations. Uh, that early part was uh, fostered by a little kid in me that had learned to program uh, when I was just 13 years old. Uh, I eventually got a job programming before I could even drive a car. Came up to the University of Michigan, got a couple of degrees in computer science, computer engineering, and graduated from Michigan in 1982. And in that um, moment, that was a big deal time for the software industry because the PC was just coming out. And quite frankly, I thought, I've got the world by the tail. I'm doing something I love. I'm well trained for it. I'm pretty darn good at it. And this is a burgeoning industry. I had no idea how much it would burgeon uh, back in 1982 compared to today. Uh, but I had a sense back then that this was big. This software thing was going to be big. And of course, it turned out to be that big. And so I had everything. And yet, very quickly, uh, my heart was breaking for the industry I'd chosen. I had uh, began to question, was this in fact uh, something that could carry me for a lifetime? And I got scared. Uh, and it was because I saw the disconnect between what I thought I could accomplish and what I actually was accomplishing. And it, in the distance between those was growing ever greater. And yet I kept getting promoted. I kept getting lauded for my efforts and my results. And I thought, no, they're falling so far short of what's possible. Mm -hmm. And so I began to question, am I, am I actually good enough for this profession? And as I poked my head up and looked around, I realized it wasn't just me. It was my entire industry that was mm -hmm. failing to deliver on a regular basis. And so I, I now speak about joy. Uh, you know that. Um, and I thought that joy originally was related to um, building technical things, organizing technical mm -hmm. efforts, uh, accomplishing something technologically that was interesting and exciting. As I dug deeper into my own heart, my own background, I realized that wasn't actually where my joy came from. And I think that has redefined for me my purpose in life. And I had to go back to a 10-year-old version of me when my parents had bought a a shelving unit in a box, much like you'd get from Ikea today. Back in 1967 for my mom, that was kind of a big deal. And they went out to dinner and a movie and I was left on my own. And I went out in the garage and I built this eight foot wide, six foot tall shelving unit. <laughs> you know, and it probably took me a couple hours, I'm sure. Uh, it was, you know, 50 pieces of wood and 200 little nuts, bolts and screws. And I was so excited to show mom and dad because I'd accomplished something. And I realized, no, mom wanted it in the living room and I built it in the garage. And I thought, no, I, I'm not going to leave it there. And I inched it out the front of the garage, down the sidewalk, through the family room, utility room, kitchen, pushed it right in the living room where mom wanted it, set up dad's books, mom's knickknacks, wired up the stereo. And when they walked in the front door, I had mom's favorite album playing. Wow. And she cried. Mm. And I realized in that story, wow. joy. Joy is actually taking the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds and serving others. And for me, I believe this is what we want to reconnect everyone in the work world to around two central questions. 
who do you serve and what would delight look like for them? And I think if we get to that in our work lives, all the other stuff we get concerned about, our titles, our office size, our our parking spot in the parking lot, all that stuff just melts away because we are wired as human beings to work on something that's bigger than themselves and in community with one another. And that became my defining purpose in life and has carried me for the last 19 years at Menlo and has caused me to write one book and now a second on the subject of joy at work. Wow. Okay. Uh, Before I lose those, let me get those two questions. I I got one of them easily. Who do you serve? And is it what would delight look like for them? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Say more about those questions and how you landed on those. And a couple of my favorite books, three of them now, uh, come from a group out in Salt Lake City called the Arbinger Institute. No, I'm well. Leadership and self-deception, the anatomy of peace, and they're so appropriately named third book, The Outward Mindset. And when you think about those two questions, who do we serve and what would delight look like for them? You realize none of that's about me. It's this external focus looking. It's not about our company. It's not even about, quite frankly, for us, it's not even about our customers. We're looking past our customers so the people who want to use the software we will design and build. And that's who we actually think about. And that's who we want to delight. Now we have to work with our customers, with our staff, and with ourselves uh, to get to that grand purpose. But ultimately, that outward mindset, that outward looking focus, look outside your building is what's so important in those two questions. Mm -hmm. I love these questions. I love the conversation. And uh I had a friend introduce me to the Arbinger Institute a couple of years ago, and I've read the books and love them all and highly recommend all three of them to to anyone listening here. Well, we're going to come back to that in a moment, but we're, we're on this topic and we've had a conversation. We've actually had a few conversations on the podcast lately about love belonging in the workplace. And when love is present, fear is absent. Yes, uh, and love and fear cannot coexist. So I'd love to invite you to contribute to that discussion as I know you have something valuable to add before we really do a deeper dive into Menlo. What, just love, fear in the working environment. What's your contribution to that without having heard the other discussions to this point? You know, I think if if someone asked me, Rich, what would the title of the book be that's the opposite of Joy, Inc.? I would have said, I always do say Fear, Inc., Fear and, fear and joy are, are juxtaposed from one another. And I absolutely believe uh, what you're describing, too, that love and fear yeah. are opposite of one another. Uh, I actually have a chapter on love in my next book. Woo-hoo! So I took it, I took it like right to the right to the carpet there. Um, and fear is is an interesting um, element of management, isn't it? Yes. I will say that I think I was taught in my earliest managerial days by my leaders that uh, fear was beneficial. Uh, You should motivate with fear. In fact, if there isn't enough fear in the room, create some fear. That'll help. Uh, And fear is the mind killer, right? Fear puts us into reptile brain. Fear takes away our humanity. Uh, If we can, as leaders, pump enough fear out of the room, we can 
start to develop an atmosphere where people feel safe at work, they will begin to trust one another, they will start to collaborate, you will begin to get teamwork, and then you'll get to creativity, energy, imagination, and invention, which, quite frankly, those are the things that are the most human parts about us, right? Because we're staying in that human part of our brain. And everybody who's worried about automation and artificial intelligence, all that sort of thing. We, we in the computer science industry haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't even dinged the paint of what humans are actually capable of doing. But if we stay in the fear mode, we're going to lose. And, um, and that's, uh, uh, that's a big deal. Okay. <clears throat> And I was hoping you would talk about that and driving fear out of the room because we've had that in a previous conversation. And so thanks for sharing that. Now, let's talk about Menlo because I know that's your passion. And and uh, we're doing this. This is an audio podcast. We record via video. So we may have to publish some of this video so people can actually see Rich is sitting in a conference room. With Menlo in the background, the, the yes. workspace of Menlo is in yeah, the background. You can, you can see it all back. At least you can see a slice of it back yeah. there. It goes way down there, but uh, yeah, I just got a little slice of it here. So. so what's your favorite way of introducing Menlo Innovations? You know, when I talk about Menlo as a business and people walk in our door and they've come to visit us because we get a lot of visitors a year, we get probably three to 4,000 visitors per year who come from all over the world just to see this space that's in the basement of a parking structure in downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan. I, I provoke them a bit when they walk in the door. I say, welcome to Menlo. You've come to a place that has very intentionally created a culture focused on the business value of joy. And What's intriguing about that opening line is it stops people dead in their tracks. They, they I'm look sure at these, it does. Yeah, you know, they're like, what are you talking about? Uh, we're here to learn about how you develop software, we, we, how you organize your team. Why are you talking about joy? And I said, well, pretend you were going to bring a software project here for us to work on. That's what we do for a living. We build software for other businesses. And imagine that half of my team had joy for some weird reason and the other half didn't. Which half would you want working on your project? And they always look at me and say, well, of course we'd want the joyful half. And I say, why? Why would you care? What difference would it make? And all of a sudden, all the answers start popping out. They say, well, they'd be more productive. They, they'd care more about the outcome. They, they, they'd, uh, they, they, they'd produce higher quality. They, they would uh, think more about what exactly they're doing. They'd be easier to work with. I always love that answer. It, almost everybody says it, right? I, IT has a little bit of a user experience problem in general. Um, and I say, okay, so you're with me. There is, in fact, tangible business value to joy right? Greater productivity, greater quality, greater outcomes. And they're like, yep. And I say, now I'm going to give you a tour. I'm going to show you how we do what we do. And you can stop me anywhere and say, point to this thing, whatever it happens to be and say, Rich, tell me how that connects back to joy. Mm. I will be able to draw a short, straight line back to joy because it's one thing to have a a mission statement, a well-defined purpose, one you could put on a poster and hang on a wall. That's, that's important. But if all of your systems don't tie back, everything you do, how you think, don't tie back to that system, 
then that's all it is, is a poster on the wall. You need to think through everything you do and get back to that fundamental purpose, which for us is producing joy in the world through the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. Back to that story with my mom. Okay, so I want to follow this thread a little bit. You're talking about a thread. So what, share with us one or two different things or things that Menlo does differently because of this commitment to joy. Well, what is something? I know some of those, but what would you share with us today? Well, one of them is you're, you're literally looking at it over my shoulder here. This, this big open room, a lot of visual management, no walls, offices, cubes, or doors. Uh, it's actually unusual for me to be in a conference room like this. I'm kind of, I'm protecting your audience from the noise of the room. Uh, but I'm out in the room with everybody else. There's no gifted C-suite. There's no separate office. In fact, I sit at the same five-foot table as everyone else. Uh, and I'm actually sitting where the team put me. They put me where they want me to be, not where I've chosen. And I recently went on vacation. When I came back from vacation, they had moved my table. And I don't get upset about that. I, I just say, oh, they must have a purpose. And I hope the purpose is they want me in something, not out of something. But, yeah. you know, I don't ask those questions. Well, the last time we spoke, you told me they had just moved your office and they had moved it closer to the exit than it had ever been. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm even closer this time. So maybe something's going on there. Uh, they like to tell me, you know, Rich, a lot of people come to see you. So why shouldn't we have you near the front door? I, that's their story and I'm sticking to it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and what's something else? Let's talk about one of the things I found intriguing. Uh, first off, this, this space and how the space is frequently reconfigured. Yep. Almost daily. Yeah. yeah. And and people, your, your programmers work in pairs. Pairs, not just teams, uh, but very specifically pairs. And, and when you say pairs, that's quite literal. Where yeah, two yes. people are sharing one computer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sharing a keyboard, a mouse, a screen. Uh, they might have a couple of screens. That's up to them. Uh, sharing a table. And, uh, and more importantly, sharing the work. So it's not, hey, Kevin, come help me with my work. I need your assistance. No, this is our work together. Much like you and I are paired doing this podcast. It'd be really weird for you to say, hey, Rich, you know, come help me with my podcast. And then you let me do all the podcasting. Right. <laughs> um, and so uh, pairing is a very active engagement of two people sharing a task together and saying this is our work together. OK, so what does the interview process look like to come to work for Menlo? Yeah, well, you can imagine when you have an environment where people are working that closely together, the standard two people lying to each other style interview that I used most of my early career, you know, where I would say, you know, hey, Kevin, if you were a day of the week, what day would you be? You know, <laughs> all that stupid stuff. So we have an interview where we don't ask questions and we don't look at resumes. Wow. Say more. Yeah. So what we do is we turned it into an audition because our belief is what we want to see is the person. We don't want to see the sheaf of paper. We don't want to see how cleverly did you answer the questions. And quite frankly, I mean, the interesting part of our audition is uh, it is success oriented. We actually want you to succeed. And so in this audition, what we do is we pair candidates with one another. 
two people work together that are put, that are literally competing for the same positions. And we tell them, give them the weirdest instructions ever. Your job, Kevin, is to get the person sitting next to you, who, by the way, is competing for the same position you are. Try and get them a second interview. Make your partner look good. Now, I think. I love that. I love that. I've loved that ever since I first heard that, Rich. You know, I don't think there could be a better way to start teaching outward mindset than that. Yeah. So, look, there's this perfect stranger sitting next to you. If they struggle, help them. If if the answer is on the tip of their tongue and, and you have it, give it to them. Mm. Don't lord it over them that you thought of it before them. For goodness sakes, do we give you one piece of paper and one pencil. It's not a computer exam. It's a, there's some simple exercises people go through. They're hard enough that you fall into the work. But it's one pencil, one piece of paper. So you actually have to start sharing. We're looking for good kindergarten skills. And, uh, you know, do you play well with others kind of thing. And so we literally tell people during the interview, do not grab the pencil out of the other person's hand. If you want the pencil, ask for it politely. And if you're asked for it, hand it to them. Mm. Uh, so we look for manners, literally, in these, in these initial uh, sessions. And we do that for 20 minutes, and then we switch the pairs because that's the way we work at Menlo. The pairs are not permanently assigned here. We switch them generally speaking, every five days, sometimes more frequently, but no longer than five days. So if you and I pair together for five days at Menlo, we won't be paired together again next week. And so by uh, we simulate this in the interview. We actually have you pair as a candidate with three different people for 20 minutes each, while three Menlonians take notes about what they saw. Mm. And so we're not asking questions, we're just observing behavior. We're teaching you from the moment of the interview our expectations for what it means to be a Menlonian. And what is a Menlonian, by the way? (laughs) Well, uh, I mean, at its its simplest, a Menlonian is someone who works for Menlo. But but I think uh, it's probably fair to say, Kevin, you are a Menlonian at heart. Oh, well, thank you, Rick. (laughs) And so uh, we, we include a much wider uh, community okay. of people who, who believe in us and share our message with the world and that sort of thing. So Menlonian is both a legal implication of you're an employee of Menlo, and it's also a sort of a heartfelt implication of uh, you believe in what it is we're okay. doing. So now the Menlonians that actually are employed by Menlo Innovations, yeah. how do you hear them describe the culture of Menlo to others? You know, we do tours. Uh, We do one to three tours a day uh, here at Menlo. Uh, I used to do a lot of them, uh, maybe even most of them. Uh, There was probably even in the early days, I did nearly all of them, either me or my co-founder, James. Uh, Now the Menlonians do tours. Uh, I almost never do tours anymore. And so I actually get to hear their stories. Uh, And of course, it's through their lens. What is it like to work here? and so on. I think where my favorite places is when I overhear even uh, uh, a retelling of a story where uh, somebody like, I know Michelle has done this, where she was taking some evening classes uh, to up her skills just a little bit. And there was a person in in her class with her, they were waiting outside in the corridor, uh, and uh, that person was complaining about their job and wondering where, where could this class take them that might be more interesting. And Michelle piped up and she just said to her, I love my job. Mm. 
And the woman who eventually be the woman she was talking to eventually became a Menlonian. So we heard her side of the story and she said, I've never heard anyone outside of work say that about their job. Right. Wow. You might say it in front of your boss or something <laughs> like that. But this was in a very, uh, you know, in a completely different place. And here's somebody saying, I love my job like they really meant it. She said I had to learn more. And she eventually became a Melonian herself. Mm. And so I think that is important for us that, um, look, this is hard work. Uh, we're regular human beings. Uh, we get frustrated with things. We get frustrated with each other from time to time. What I hope we've created here and what I hope you'd hear from Menlonians is we have the relationships in place that we can work through those difficult things together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just a couple of other things that I think, well, I know I've heard or read about Menlo Innovations that, that's different. You may, you may be so immersed in it now that you've forgotten, but don't work weekends. Yeah. Must take vacation. When you're on vacation, don't check email. Right. Yeah, I just took a vacation and Anna told me, she says, Rich, I'll check your email while you're away. Uh, I was working on something with my publisher. So I, I followed up on a few emails while I was doing that because that's work that only I could do. And the timing was such that I had to do a little bit of that. But the general Menlo stuff, no, that we... When you hit the door at the end of the day, we want you to be present with your family. We want you to be involved in your hobbies and your community. Uh, when you're on the, when you're off on the weekend, we don't want you thinking about work. And, and this is, I mean, it sounds, it sounds almost Nirvana-like, right? You know that we cut you off electronically when you go on vacation. That we tell you when you're home, be home. There's a business purpose behind this, <laughs> right? I want your best self when you're here. Um, the work we do often holds the lives of people in its hands or certainly holds the lives of companies in its hands. Software is a very dangerous profession. We can kill people. We can crash cars. We can crash websites. We can release information that you're trying to protect out to the world. Uh, you know, there've been lots of examples of this. We can ground aircraft uh, for no other reason than software wasn't working. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the work we do, we take very seriously. And so I want the best people possible. I don't want tired people here. I don't want burned out people here. Mm. I want energized people here. Mm. And if all they're doing is work, I won't get to joy. We wow. won't get to joy. Yeah, as you were saying that, all of a sudden I was reminded of Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. Mm. I don't know if you've read it, but I have not. But he talks about if if you want to do deep creative work, some of these concepts you're talking about are essential to deep work. You've got to cut yourself off in the evening, allow yourself rest, allow your mind rest, don't be on screens the whole time, and and then you're free to do your best work and what you're saying, bring your best self to work. Yeah. Um, Love the yeah, it's amazing how I think we've developed as a society where we believe that sleep is a sign of weakness. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and people, it's a badge of honor how little you sleep. And well, and look, here's the thing we have to fight against, you and me, given our positions in the world and who our audiences are. That hard work, that overtime, that 24-7, I'm on all the time, and I get texts at 3 in the morning, and I answer the boss when he texts me. That's actually a, 
a, a reward, right? Imagine you're over, you know, at the weekend and you come home from work and your neighbor's talking over the fence and says, hey, Kevin, how's work going? You're like, oh, my gosh, it's, I'm so busy. I'm working so many hours. I'm, I, I, I can't even think straight right now. I'm working so hard. We're, we've got this big deadline ahead and we're behind. And, you know, and what are you really saying? What's the undercurrent? Oh, I'm so important. Yeah. They can't live without me. I'm so valuable to my employer. And until we can break that reward system, mm-hmm. which is literally killing people yeah. uh, and killing companies and killing morale and killing teamwork, uh, until we can break that mental model, we're going to be stuck in a, in a very, uh, you know, in that place of disengagement, all the statistics about work, right? Yeah. How many people are disengaged at work? And so you need that paradoxical approach that says, if you want your best people at work, treat them like people. Don't treat like treat them like employees. Okay, so let's talk about the, the storytelling aspect and the tour hosting aspect of Menlo. When did you realize or begin to realize that Menlo had a story to share? Actually, it was intriguingly before Menlo. Um, I had... When I was a VP of R&D at Interface Systems, we had crafted over two years something that looks almost identical to what's behind me here. And people started to visit even back then. The first visit was a a group from IBM. They were customers of Interface Systems. And Ed and his team came in. Ed was the senior vice president at IBM. And we we were in this paneled boardroom that you'd have inside of a public company. And our VP of sales says to me, he says, Rich, or no, he says to Ed, the VP from IBM, I'm in the room. He says, Ed, would you like to see our development process? Now, I am shocked because the VP of sales did not tell me he was going to say this. <laughs> and I'm going to take the guys in the suits and the shiny shoes and the white shirts and the blue ties and the well-groomed hair from this panel boardroom out to crazy land. Okay. Something that looks like this thing behind me, right? There might've been Nerf darts flying or something like that. And I'm like, Hey, it's your customer. I'm game. So I took them on this tour of the Java factory at interface systems. Uh, I opened the door, which was, it was literally a factory space that I was working in now. So I opened this fire door into the factory space. And I liken that moment into the moment of going from black and white to color and the wizard of Oz, you know, <laughs> and, um, and so we walk around, we, I show him everything we're doing. We go back to the boardroom and he, we sit down and this VP of IBM looks at me and he says, Rich, that's the most amazing thing I have ever seen. Wow. Congratulations. He says, we could never do at IBM what you've done here. Well, let me tell you, at that point, I became chief storyteller and tour guide in Interface Systems. Hmm. Microsoft, Bell & Howell, ProQuest, uh, uh, Pfizer, they all came to visit. So when we started Menlo, we knew that this idea of inviting people in to see what it was we were doing was compelling. And so we began the tours, even in the earliest days. Back then, they were all free. Um, and, uh, And people started coming. And we started telling our stories and the stories got deeper. And of course, we started collecting more stories. People wanted to learn more. They started spending two hours, four hours, eight hours, five days. Uh, We started formalizing some of those into classes. And so uh, we knew we were onto something from the very, very beginnings of them. Wow. Wow. 
So what is it that what's something or what what's something you commonly hear that people notice that's palpable when they enter Menlo? What are the things that just kind of shock them? You know, I, I think number one, we're in a windowless basement of a parking structure. Okay. Now, a lot of people ask us, like, was that your choice? Did you not want sunlight? And we're like, well, no, we wanted three things more than sunlight. We wanted one big open room that we've got about uh, 25,000 square feet here now. Um, we wanted um, uh, downtown Ann Arbor because we love being in the vibrancy of a downtown. It's a fun town to be in. And we wanted to be able to afford it. <laughs> So sunlight left the room, as it were. Um, but when they walk in, and I'm often with them, I can literally hear it on their voices. They will walk in and go, wow. And why is that? Because they can feel the human energy in right. the room. And they never, even at the end, uh, say, yeah, not bad for the window and space from the parking structure. And all of a sudden, they're like looking around like, Oh my gosh, you're right. You know, they didn't see that up until that point because, you know, a lot of people think that, um, yeah, they're, they're looking for the ping pong tables, the foosball tables, the beanbag chairs. We have none of that stuff, none of it, right? What they're seeing is actual work. They're seeing teamwork in action. They're feeling the conversations and hearing joyful work. Yes, exactly. Energized. They'll hear laughter. Uh, We laugh a lot here. Uh, they'll, they, they'll, they'll likely see a dog running through the space. They might even see a baby or two. Uh, We've got a couple of those on the way. Uh, and so all of these things, it just hits them wave after wave after wave. And, and then the ones who stay longer, the ones who really get us, they start to see that nothing here is random. It's all incredibly intentional. It's all connected to our grand purpose. It drives the actual work, all the visual artifacts and so on. And they realize that this rabbit hole isn't a rabbit hole anymore. It's a rabbit warren. I mean, it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And I will even say I don't particularly understand Menlo anymore. The intricacy of everything we do here is so intertwined and interconnected that I find myself learning about Menlo even when I'm leading tours. Wow. So are there questions you've been asked from tours that just kind of linger in your mind after the tour is over? You know, there, there's some that uh, uh, have actually caused us to rethink ourselves, uh, which I delight in. Uh, one from many years ago was Cam came in from Nationwide Financial, and he was taking an all-day class here. Uh, Nationwide had run about 400 people through our classes here. And Cam said, Rich, who do people report to here? And I've been teaching the class for seven years. No one had ever asked that question. And I realized that the answer I was about to give was going to blow Cam away. So I decided I wasn't going to give the answer. And I invited five Menlonians to the front of the room and lined them up because we teach the classes right in our space. Okay, so it's it's kind of this interesting little, we're off to the side teaching the class, but uh, but the point is that um, people are actually, uh, um, they can see the work that's being described by the class. So I invited five Menlonians up. They didn't know why. I lined them up in front of the room. I went to the back of the room so I could watch the whole interaction. And I said, Cam, ask them your question. And um, 
And Cam's like, I, I think at that point he was getting a little frustrated with me. He's like, Rich, why can't you just answer the question? I said, no, ask them. And so he says, okay, who do people report to here? If I'd only had a camera in that moment to look, <laughs> the look of bewilderment on the team's face because we'd never contemplated the question before. And one of them said, oh, I think kind of the process in some cases, I could probably say the project manager. Some might say the user and the customer. And they're all kind of doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and then almost simultaneously, they pointed to each other. Mm. And Cam's like, okay, you guys don't understand the question. He says, let's, let's talk about interviewing and hiring. <laughs> Who makes the hiring decisions? And he said, well, we do. And they described our, that weird interviewing process we have where the observers are the ones who make the decisions and those are regular team members. He's like, oh, okay, I get that. He says, but, but who makes promotion decisions? And they were like, well, we do. And went on to describe our feedback lunch process. And the only way you move up is through peer evaluation. And it's like, okay, okay. Uh, how about the financials? You know, and, and nowadays we do open book finance. So the team is running all the financials, of the company. So at this point, Cam is like blown away. Right. And we had never, ever contemplated that question. It mm. just didn't matter to us. We didn't build a hierarchical structure. I don't even think we avoided building it. We just didn't need it. And I feel sometimes like a bit of, um, mm like that kid in school that realized, oh, I missed the day at business school when they talked about managerial structures and therefore I don't know how to build them. So we just didn't. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, yet it also caused my co-founder and I to say, well, how will we talk about this? Because a lot of people say, oh my gosh, that sounds like Lord of the Fly style chaos, which I get. And I always remind them, I say, remember that bossless doesn't mean leaderless. And this is actually the, the core structure, uh, uh, subject of my next book of lead with joy. So what does it mean to build a culture of joyful leadership mm. that doesn't require hierarchical authority in order to get things done? Mm. And mm. that portends a trust and a relationship among the team members that's pretty substantial. Yeah, And I always tell people, I say, you know, you don't need the you don't need to jettison hierarchy to get to joy because I did that at Interface Systems. I didn't have to change anything about the hierarchy to get to the joy at Interface Systems. So don't be confused that in order to get to joy, you have to dismantle hierarchy because it's not true. Uh, but we have just found that by building this non-hierarchical model, we can actually get to something far more compelling. Well, well thanks for sharing that. I. I I wasn't expecting that to be the question that that uh, lingered in your mind and caused you to have so many more questions and conversations, but I love it. And I love how you saw the culture being different as a result of that and even saw how extreme those differences are from the the typical. Now, last year, Menlo was recognized as a small giant by Forbes. Yes. And small giants are companies that have great impact. And Rich, you, you wrote a book, Joy Inc., which we've not really, we're, we're talking about without talking about. We're not going through chapter and verse, but everything you've shared is the story of Joy Inc. And if you've not read Joy Inc., I highly encourage you to get it and read it, do it. But I ask, was it okay to ask you this question? Because I, I am intrigued by this. <laughs> Among these visitors, you have 
Fortune 100 companies. You have global giants coming to watch joy at work in a small giant. Are there times that just blows your mind? It does, especially the ones that fly in on corporate jets to a local business airport here. (laughs) Uh, Pile out of that jet, come here in a limo, uh, sit with us for a day and then fly home. And, And I can't even imagine the expense involved in just rolling that you know, Gulfstream five out of a, uh, out of a hangar somewhere and, and they walk away changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for me, uh, there's a, there's an unrealness to this, but you recognize that no matter the size of the company, everybody's dealing with many of the same issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I always tell people that, you know, we are a tiny company for sure. Um, And uh, yet, the lessons here are universal lessons. And in fact, um, the, uh, the, the key lessons we could share with people have to do with, um, uh, you know, building relationships, pumping fear out of the room, uh, getting to all those kind of places. And so you don't need to be big to share those kind of human lessons. In fact, I think there's actually a great advantage of big companies coming because they can see all of us. There's not some secret room somewhere where the real magic is going on. They can actually see every piece and part of Menlo while they're here. They're seeing an entirely encapsulated system at work that they have have successfully taken back and they can implement their version of that and allow it to spread within their own organizations. Mm So what gives you hope that more workplaces are embracing joy as a business value? (laughs) You know, when I gave a talk in Berlin uh, a couple of years ago, now after the book came out, and I had male German engineers come up to me in tears after my talk. And I thought, if I can get male German engineers to cry, I, I'm, <laughs> I can probably move hearts everywhere on the planet. And I think for me, uh, I just got back from a, three talks in Tokyo. And what I found that gives me hope is that this idea of joy at work is actually global. It's, it's not a... It's not a U.S. thing. It's not an Ann Arbor, Michigan thing. It's not a tech industry thing. It's not a small company thing. This is something everyone is yearning for. They're all on a different point on their journey. But what gives me hope is that the basic humanity in our workplaces is alive and well, even if it's taking a backseat to things that people think are more important than they are. They're kind of waking up and recognizing that um, Mm. there's there isn't a zero-sum game at work here. I love that. Not a zero-sum game. And and joy can be included and, and made comfortable anywhere. It's possible. Absolutely. And, and I want to differentiate, too, as I do in the book. Joy and happiness are two very different things. Uh, are we happy here at Menlo? You bet. Do we laugh? Sure. Uh, it'll happen several times today. But ultimately, it's not about achieving happiness. That's a momentary state of being. Joy is a much longer arc. Mm. Joy is doing something worthy that has impact in the world, that feels like it came out of the wellspring of a team that was bonded together and was willing to work hard, shoulder to shoulder for a long period of time to do something meaningful. 
uh, that's really what drives the energy, I believe, of human teams is to getting to that kind of purpose-driven joy. Mm, love it. Okay, Rich, you've got a new book coming out soon, Lead with Joy. Can you whet our appetite just a little bit for that book? Yeah, there's a chapter in Joy Inc. called Growing Leaders, Not Bosses. And uh, this is essentially a book that picks apart the values of Menlo as a company and then the special values that are required to be a leader here at Menlo. And um, uh, if I'll give you just the briefest peek. Uh, uh, for those of your audience who are willing to crack open a Bible, go look at that First Corinthians passage on love that's used at probably every uh, uh, wedding out there that wants to bring love into the mix. Uh, and I use that in one of my chapters to talk about how leadership and love are so aligned with one another that you could probably substitute the word love for leadership in that mm. Bible passage and get to that kind of joy. Mm. Mm. Well, I look forward to reading that. So will you come back and talk with us, discuss Lead with Joy with us when it's released? Uh, you would imagine I might love to do that. <laughs> So, Rich, for people that want to know more and people that are, are really intrigued, mesmerized uh, by this talk about joy at work and maybe even want to come for a visit or learn more, what, where do they go? How do they learn more? Yeah, I think an easy entree is uh, two things. One, go buy the book. Uh, and that's not my purpose in saying that. Uh, go borrow a book. Go, go out, check one out at the library. For goodness sakes, read the book. Uh, there's a lot of uh, the impact the book has had on people around the planet has been so marvelous for me that I just want to encourage your listeners because I'm guessing they're right in the heart of the spectrum of people that are going to buy it and pick up and read a book like this. And if you're intrigued enough, come visit. That people come from all over the planet to come see us. So be one of those people. Uh, that would be my encouragement to your leadership. All right, Rich, thank you so much for joining us. And what a joy-filled conversation we've shared today. Yeah, you bet. I, I have enjoyed it as well. I, uh, I, I appreciate you, Kevin. I appreciate the audience of listeners you've gathered together because uh, my sense is they are trying to change the world in a pretty dramatic way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rich. Let me share a couple of things before we say goodbye for today. Joy at work. What a concept. Imagine a workplace where fear is minimized, if not banished altogether. Wouldn't that be great? Just as fear is the opposite of love, fear is also the opposite of joy. And I love the point Rich made. It's easy for some of us to miss this, that people are people, and no matter the size of the company, we're fundamentally dealing with the same issues because the issues and concerns we're dealing with are common to people everywhere. It's humanity. And our task is to rehumanize the workplace. When you're building a business on purpose, nothing is random. Everything communicates. So step back and look at your purpose and draw the lines and connect the dots between your purpose and everything you do. And don't do anything just because the standard assumptions are to do it. Do what's authentic and attuned to your purpose. And then I love these two questions Rich posed. And I encourage you to explore these with your team. Who do you serve? 
and what would delight look like for them? Hey, before I go, I want to ask, do you find joy in your work? Or is there something robbing you of joy at work? So whether your joy is overflowing or whether you're underwhelmed by its absence, I'm inviting you to join me for a one-on-one conversation to help you experience more joy and purpose at work. It's an open invitation for you to join me for a 15-minute conversation that's laser-focused on you and helping you experience more joy in and through your work. Book your call now by going to kevindemonrowe.com forward slash work. I can't wait to talk. Hey, until next time, live, love, and lead with purpose. If you want to take the leap from being inspired by purpose to being powered by purpose, then you should download the Purpose Manifesto. The Manifesto is a call to action, a challenge to live and work in alignment with your purpose and see the results you know are possible. Get it at kevindemonroe.com slash manifesto.